This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Kia ora and welcome to Reserved Recommendations. This is a show about great trash, difficult art and our complicated relationships with art and culture. My name's Hugh, I'm the host of the show and I'd like to take this opportunity to put in a very mild content warning for the show as a whole. Sometimes our recommendations on this show are reserved just because the thing that we're discussing is in some way not good, but sometimes there are aspects of the art or artist that may be confronting for some people. Check the episode descriptions for more information and do be aware of your listening environment. All right, uh, welcome back. This is another episode of Reserved Recommendations, a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio today. Um, we talk about great trash and problematic faves, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, let me introduce my brother, Gus, um, returning champion. Uh, lovely to have you back on the pod talking about things. Uh, just to reassure international listeners, I am not underwater. But did you have to kayak to work today? No, uh, actually. Um, we got off very lightly. Uh, so the the north of the north uh, of the North Island got got absolutely hammered. And uh, the I'm just doing compass points in my head. Basically the coasts, but particularly Hawke's Bay, so like Napier and Hastings, places like that, also got an absolute kicking, um, and and they're looking pretty rough. Uh, uh, I think we're looking at like 9,000 people displaced, something like that, which considering ooh. the kind of uh, disaster infrastructure New Zealand has is pretty bad. Like normally the thing about disasters in New Zealand is that the – the human cost tends not to be that bad on an international scale just because like we're pretty good at fixing stuff. Um, But uh, here in Palmy, we had like some howling gales, which we get anyway and, uh, and some heavy rain, but uh, my street didn't even go underwater, uh, which it has with much less rain in previous years. So, um, you know, I'm I'm all in all pretty pleased. I think that's probably that there were um, like stormwater pumps that were slow to kick into action in, in the past, and the council was just like everything run full speed uh, this time around because they were yes. expecting worse than we got. Yes, yeah. Um, no, that, that's good to hear. Well, I mean, good to hear for you, but also. Yeah, um, also, um, you know, like even the conservative political party have started making noises about taking climate change seriously, which is nice. Um, and it's also caused the hilarious phenomenon of uh, like one of New Zealand's right wing Twitter nuts, a guy called Red Beta, who I think had been banned and then reinstated by Elon Um starting to like rant about how the national party is secret communists and greenies and coming to take your tractor, um, which well, is, of course. yeah, like it, it, it's, uh, it's good. It's uh, I, I fully support his transition into like absolute derangement uh, as opposed to just like nasty right-wing boomerism. He's just a normal man having a very normal day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a sequence of very normal days, uh, it looks like. Yes. 
Um, Anyhow, anyhow, uh, we're not talking about climate disasters. We are talking about, uh, well, something that might be a disaster because, like, I I am fascinated by the mystery of this movie. And and we can maybe get into that towards the end of the episode because I feel like something happened and there is no record of what. Uh, But what we're talking about is the 1993 or 1994 movie, depending on how you count it, The Punk, Um, which like – also known as the punk and the princess. Yeah, I believe that was the name it got for for American release. Um, mm. And the thing about this movie is that you and I saw it as teenagers, um, probably like three or four years after it came out. Um, and it was mm-hmm. like on TV uh, late at night in New Zealand a couple of times. Uh, it was in local video stores. It it had enough of an impact on our circle of friends that rewatching it with with my wife, um, like there were phrases that that people would say, and I would be like ah, pointing at the screen because like yeah. they became kind of mimetic in uh, in teenage circles that we were moving in, but nobody knows about it as far as I can tell, yeah. at least. No, exactly. Like, I think there were, um, yeah, definitely phrases that moved into popular use within our our friend group that came from that movie in particular. Um, Yeah, well, so as an example, there's a scene towards the end of the movie where someone produces a Stanley knife as a threat and says, I think it's time you met my mate Stan. Um, and we have at work a Stanley toolbox, you know, one of those um, stackable oh, wow. ones where you can like clip them together into a larger toolbox uh, full of connectors and cables and things, which is mm-hmm. to this day affectionately referred to as the box of Stan, for, uh, which yeah. is a direct reference to that movie. And nobody understands it. Um, Excellent. Excellent. So so by way of setting the table, what what we're talking about is. Uh, a low-budget British movie. Um, it did the art house circuit, I believe. Like it was in film festivals and things. Um, it is a riff on Romeo and Juliet, uh, rather than a direct adaptation. Like it, it kind of does its versions of characters and iconic scenes, but it doesn't, by any stretch, directly follow the plot. Um, and it stars a very young Charlie Creed Miles who went on to like have this kind of almost ran career. He's still acting. Um, he was in like the fifth element in a small role. He was in, um, a whole bunch of TV. He was like in mm-hmm. the bill. He was, do you remember the movie Harry Brown where um, oh, what's his face? Michael Caine uh, plays an elderly murder oh. guy. Um, oh, making- yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's probably a, 
Michael Caine. That's a, probably a Michael Caine movie befitting of this podcast. Oh yeah, I, I mean that's probably an episode of it. So it's a movie that yeah. um, if people are not familiar with, uh, do oblique podcast recommendations. Um, but if people have not listened to Kill James Bond, firstly they should, um, and secondly I reckon Harry Brown is. Uh, would be fit for a, for a Kill James Bond episode as well. It it has ideas about masculinity, but anyway, yes. Ch- Charlie Creed Miles is one of the the two cops who follows uh, Michael Caine's roaring rampage of revenge in that movie. Um, he got married to the woman who played uh, Ed Weiner's long suffering daughter, Safi, and absolutely fabulous. Um, so he's been like around the periphery of things, but he's uh, his first time heading a movie since I think was this thing called Wild Bill, which came out like five or ten years ago, where he plays like a reformed crim trying to go straight, uh, and it's a sort of like a, an attempt to get the kind of lock stock uh, style of, of British crime drama and then like look at the human consequences of it. It's, it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Um, and he's good in it um, in, in my view, but like he never quite uh, broke through as a movie star, I think. Um, no, no. Uh, it's also Vanessa Hadaway is the, is the love interest, the Juliet, if you like. Um Again, like an extensive career in TV, but never had like grand leading lady status. And she's good in this movie, I think. Um, yeah. And and so it, I, I just I want to know what happened, and I have no way of finding out. So because I I just. Looking, re- trying to refresh my mind um, about this movie and going to its IMDb page, I saw that it had a movie poster and I looked at that movie poster and it had a review, a quote from a review in The Guardian. So I have been quietly trying to Google um, the Pumpkin Prin- Princess review from The Guardian, um, which I cannot find. But what I have found is that apparently this is based on a book called The Bunk... <coughs> Sorry. Uh, 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 a cult book called The Punk, which was written by a man named Gideon Sams um, when he was all of 14. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is, again, a, which is in of itself was a reworking of Romeo and Juliet. So I've actually read the book. It's awful. Ah, uh, Yes. Um, yes. It's really quite it's really quite bad. Um it 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 shows being written by a 14-year-old. It's like weirdly spiteful and and kind of pointlessly nihilistic and has this like and then they died and everyone was sorry for being mean to them because they're mean to me cuz I'm 14 kind of ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and uh, I don't know that it would have a huge degree of significance if Gideon Sams hadn't like died at 21 in his first New York winter, which is like mm. a thing that's mentioned in the credits of the movie. Um, it's, yeah, I, it's it's fascinating. Like it, clearly, the book connected with these people, and it was a passion project for them. Um, it's just because, for whatever reason, it didn't connect. And 
these people didn't have the careers they expected. Charlie Kreef Miles did almost all the music for it, if you look at the credits. So it was clearly an attempt to launch him as like a double, if not triple threat. Um, But because it didn't make that connection, it never, as far as I know, got a Blu-ray, a DVD release, let alone Blu-ray. And we had to watch it again for this episode on a, a version that was like taped from TV and then digitized and is like just utter garbage uh, as far as as far as picture quality like um yeah and it includes like a, a like a um a pitch to what's coming up next at, uh, over the end credits and, and yeah such yeah and like the resolution is so low that every time because it's shot on site in uh it says where it's shot in london i forget um but in like lower class bits of london um, it was shot on location. So there's a lot of brick is what I'm saying. There's a lot of brick yeah, and a yeah. lot of concrete. And anytime there's anything with that kind of a grid pattern in the background of a shot, it's just constantly dancing and fritzing out all over the place because uh-huh. the, the resolution can't keep up with it. Yeah, yeah. And like, like it's also interesting, like you're seeing we're talking about technical stuff because there's like, I think I'm stealing this entirely from Kiljane Bong. This was before editing was uh, like invented. Um, well, so I wonder well, about well, that. Before modern ed- editing was invented. So, so I wonder about that because uh, last week's episode um, was about the movie Dark Star, which uh, mm. so Dark Star was started as a student film and then was expanded until uh into a full um into a full feature length movie and the way they did that was largely by filming fucking about um yeah and so like the thing about dark star is it does have this sort of like set up and then exploration of the premise and then payoff it's just in between all of that there's all of this like slightly aimless not slightly this fairly aimless stuff where like the crew of the spaceship like bicker and fuck around with homemade musical instruments and do the like knifey finger thing that will then be repeated to great effect in alien and like there's just a whole bunch of like aimless faffing about on a spaceship um and that's that feels disconnected because it was literally a product of reshoots and i I wonder if there was a similar like oh I don't know if it's like it like started as a short film and then was expanded or if it was just that like that because the the original book is is it's incredibly short it's like <clears throat> five chapters or something and the chapters are all 10 pages long like it's really really brief um I don't I like I wonder if there was a a dearth of script and so they like expanded the movie by by adding in a whole bunch of fucking about which is great fucking about it's one of the things i love about the movie well like it's not even the, the fucking about it's just like um in if you watch modern media or even modern staging like if you went to a, a like even um yeah, if you if you went to your local TV channel and turned it on now and watched a show, um, 
or went to a local theater, you would have a much uh, quicker sense of pacing. Um, and in film, that can sometimes come from editing, where, where you choose to cut and move to the next thing and cut and move to the next thing. Um, and this movie is just lacking that modern sensibility of having pace to move along. Yeah, yeah, I guess the reason that I was talking about fucking about is that that one of the things that it does is that it's like it's interested at the same time as doing its Romeo and Juliet thing. It's yeah. interested in trying to be a sort of socially realist um snapshot of what life was like for for poor people in London at the time. And so there's a whole subplot about shit, what's the kid's name? Is it Daniel? David. Yeah, David. David. David is the name of the punk. Um mm-hmm. there's a whole subplot about David needing to move out of his house because he doesn't get on with his dad um, and finding mm-hmm. a squat. And then you see him like go through the process of finding this house and it makes sure to pan over the graffiti that says like 40,000 empty homes, why 40,000 homeless? Um, yeah. I don't yeah, know if yeah. I've got those numbers right. But you like you get to see him go through the process of breaking into the house and setting himself up there. And then you get this fairly long interlude of him just like sitting by the fire, jamming by himself on an acoustic guitar, doing like mm-hmm. beatboxing and, and jazzy classical guitar to nobody. Um and there's like a whole subplot about him getting a job at a at a fishmonger. Um and like a lot of that stuff you could pair pair out of the plot quite easily. All the, oh, pool, I, I. all the pool and snooker stuff as well. Like, there's a lot of yeah. scenes of characters playing pool and snooker, which like sets up that David is good at it, but doesn't like the fact that he's a good snooker player doesn't play into the story at all. No, no, um, yeah, no. Like, I think there is definitely a little like. I kind of realized that this I felt feels like what it was meant to be was um uh Mark, Michael Sarns and um uh Charlie Creed Miles like Shallow Grave are you familiar with Shallow Grave? No, I've never seen that's like an early Ewan McGregor movie, right? It's like the the first kind of big Ewan McGregor movie. It was like it 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 it's Shot in 1993 on half decent film stock, so it's you know it, it's it's not bad looking, but it is definitely a like it feels like a student film, right? Like it, it has that feel to it, but it kind of like put eyeballs on Ewan McGregor um, and some other people and and catapulted them into like you know onto better things. And I have a feeling that this was meant to be somebody's shallow grave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you mentioned Mike San, who is the the director, and he's an interesting bloke because um, he, like, he is most known as like an actor and had a couple of like singles in the nineteen sixties. Um, he like produced a few things, but. He only like directed three movies, including this, I think. 
um, like a a couple of sort of I I haven't gone and watched them, but I get the sense that they're like either sex comedies or sex dramas in the late sixties and early seventies. Um, so yeah, maybe this was his his attempt to kind of go legit after a, a fairly long break because like i say yeah his previous directing thing had been in 1970 yeah no like i, I yeah because it's yeah as i say it feels like it it's somebody's somebody's things out out of uh you know uh, somebody's attempt at a springboard to something um in some ways shall yeah. we book kind of about about it in a, of itself yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, the 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 mystery of it is the thing that has intrigued me all of these years and led to me eventually coming back to it and going, like, what the hell, actually? But but all of these questions don't really have answers. So, yeah, I think uh, what we might do is we might take our halfway break now, even though it's slightly early for where we normally do it, and uh, we will um, talk a bit about like the movie as a movie after this. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. And we're back. You're listening to Reserved Recommendations on Manawatu People's Radio today. I'm talking uh, today to my brother Gus, uh, all the way from Glasgow, um, where I'm sure there is weather and light happening of some sort. Um, I I have neither of those things because I'm recording this episode in the studio at work, so I am thoroughly in an insulated cave. Um, anyway, we are talking about the, like, I was going to call it cult, but it's like, I don't know, super cult because it's it's basically impossible to find a movie, The Punk, also known as The Punk and the Princess, um, which was directed by... Uh, mostly actor and uh and sometime pop singer rather than uh particularly di- movie director Michael Sun featured a very young Charlie Creed Miles uh and Vanessa Hadaway both of whom went on to do various things but never quite be giant stars um we were going to talk a bit about it as a movie so how did you f- – because it – like the reason this is stuck in our heads is both of us encountered it as teenagers and it and it kind of made a dent in our brains. Like how do you feel like it holds up re-watching it uh, now? In short, this movie is not good. Um, like, but it, like I think it's fascinatingly not good, right? Like it, it's not good in a quite fascinating way. 
because there are like layers of cowardice, naivety, and kind of rose tintedness that like layer on top to make this uh, kind of weirdly not very good. <laughs> So I guess I felt like slightly more sympathetic to it than that. Um, I still find the central performances by um, Charlie Creed Miles and Vanessa Hathaway quite compelling. Um, yeah. I, I What I would definitely say is that there's a lot of – there's a lot of strange choices that were made and and those do lend the movie a kind of uh, surreal vibe. Um, I would also say as well, like we mentioned in the first half, that there is a lot of fucking about in this movie. And by and large, I do actually find, uh, find the fucking about kind of charming, um, despite the fact that it's not – it doesn't really contribute to the forward momentum of the movie. Um, one of mm. the things that I, I think is kind of emblematic of of odd choices, and we I think your, your term cowardice was very interesting, and I want to get into that, but uh, is this that the movie is it's it was made presumably through like 1991 and 1992. It was released in 93 from memory. And yep. It's about punks who were, in Britain at least, kind of like a 70s through 80s phenomenon. They weren't, like, 1993 wasn't really, like, prime punk era. Um, and the the setting, as a result, is kind of strange. Like, they're trying to do this social realist look at at a bit of of london life and in some ways because they're just shot on location with natural light um and i think a lot of the background people are are non-actors who are just kind of there um they do do that quite well but also the punks are dressed up like like um you know, night on the town punks in like the full like high fashion bondage gear and rips and tatters. And David's got this like denim vest with studs and a leopard print collar that he wears all the time. Um, and so they appear to be like from an alternate world and era in a way that's quite mm-hmm. strange for what is like clearly the early 90s in London. Yeah, like, I mean, in in the movie's defense in that point, firstly, like, some of the, that costuming is fantastic. Um, oh, it's, but secondly, it's cool as shit, but it's, like, weird. But secondly, like, if you go to London and, say, wander through Camden or surrounding boroughs, you will just see people who are dressed like that as they're, like, day-to-day, I am going out to get milk, sort of costumes so i don't like like i i i I at least buy that okay fair but yeah like to to come back to what i think is one of the like one of the central things which makes this movie kind of weak is this sort of cowardice as it 
and a sort of like inability to pick a lane, right? Like, so we get a very strong setup um, at the start of the movie, you know, um, David, um, the, 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 the titular punk walks into the back of a theater um, uh, and sees the titular princess performing the role of Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. And and to be clear, like that bit is one of the bits that I, I again, find very affecting. The Like the first encounter between David and, and Rachel is the name of the, of the princess. Yeah. Has this kind of like uh, – like super real quality almost it's it's very oh. heightened in the way that like teenage love and and teenage lust is yeah no like it, it's very good and it like it it has this sort of like slightly um like fantastical setup and and payoff to it which is quite nice but like it also sets up with like hey kids this is a, you know, a riff on Romeo and Juliet. Hey, this is a riff on Romeo and Juliet. And these two people are Romeo and Juliet. Um, which is something that they like, they play back on a bunch of times. There's like, there's a balcony scene. There's, you know. Um, yeah, they make the, they make the point of having the, the antagonist. I can't remember what his name is. Um, he's the oi punk, get away hmm. from my bird. Um, I think it's time yeah. you met my mate Stan, uh, greaser character. They make the point of him having a leather jacket that has a stray cat, um, on the back. So it's clear that mm-hmm. he's supposed to be Tybalt. I just looked up on IMDb. He's actually credited as stray cat. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. So like they, they have all of these, um, references and like the drug dealer is called monk. Um, but there were like, there are two ways you can go with that, depending on how much of a Shakespearean nerd you are. Like the deep Shakespearean nerd version is to say, Hey, we think like one of the series, because um, Romeo and Juliet is, is a tragedy, right? Like everybody dies at the end. It's a tragedy. Yeah, um, yeah, and and specifically, like it's a tragedy in the sense that, uh, I, like, fatal flaw is a thing that people sometimes misunderstand. Um, in in the sense that you need to have, they think you need to have a flaw within the character. Um, Romeo and Juliet is a fatal, a, fa- a, a tragedy in the sense that the the setup of the world, the way that the world is introduced in the prologue of the play makes it clear that the circumstances that these characters are born in are going to kill them. You know that's going to happen. You get to watch it happen. They don't know what's coming, but you do, and you can see it before they do, and that's what makes it a tragedy, kind of. Yeah, and like, so that's one reading. Another reading that people sometimes come up with is that this was meant to be um, a comedy or um, a drama 
until some point at which it was decided it was going to be a tragedy. Um, that some people back on the back of saying, well, you know, like there are lots of setups to do, you know, plot bits that could set up for comedy and this and that and the other. And in fact, but it, you know, but in fact, it turns out as a tragedy, which is like, it's an interesting thought, but it would be like one of the ways you could go if you, you held that view was to go, hey, look, this is Romeo and Juliet, but we're going to go down that path. Yeah. Or that that's an interesting like, reading, because I've always thought one of the strengths of Romeo and Juliet as a play is that it is a comedy until people start dying and then everything goes wrong at once. And and that like switch of tones is one of the things that makes it effective. But but continue with what you were saying. Yeah. So yeah, like that's the thing, right? That's the that's that switch of tone is what makes people go, Oh, actually I think it was um because uh you know, like that was the point in the script that people were like, actually this is gonna be a tragedy, let's go. Um so you could just go, actually, no, we're gonna keep this a comedy and and I don't know, play it as a Shakespearean comedy, which would be interesting. Or otherwise You've set up that this is Romeo and Juliet. Everybody in your audience knows how that story ends. We are now just on the ride to get to that conclusion. Right? Like, you know, um, and so to a certain degree, like a lot of the cases of, of, I don't know, cowardice are things like, um, the friend of um, uh, David's who get cut up by Tybalt, uh, I mean Stray Cat, like doesn't die. He isn't killed. He's just cut up, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Know. And and the other friend who dies dies as a result of of uh, taking drugs that were supplied by a Monk, um, and so. I, I get what you're saying, and I think the other effect of that is that um, it's not like the thing. Ab- the thing that makes Tybalt an antagonist in Romeo and Juliet is that he belongs to the the orbit of the Capulets. I forget exactly yeah. how he connects, but like basically he is he is team team capulet he is part of that gang and that's why he's in, immediately in conflict with with romeo, uh, romeo because romeo is a montague and have i got that the wrong way around doesn't matter um yeah the the important thing is like the the family feud is still what is the cause of that antagonism whereas uh, in the world of the punk, it's just kind of dangerous to be a young person. And then Stray Cat comes in and starts cutting people up because he's a bad, violent guy. Yeah. And like, it's, it's that sort of stuff about where like, um, there, like again, uh, David is a like, or, you know, middle, lower middle class kid and Rachel comes from wealth and there might be some antagonism there, but it, again, you know, we get the setup, but no payoff, right? Like you just like that doesn't, it's not, that's not the, yeah, that's not yeah. the two, two families in, in war. Um, that, that was the, that was a, a thing that I noticed actually the second time round is that, 
Rachel. You so you get a you get a, the 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 arc of their relationship is that they meet at this um, squat party. Uh, they immediately hit it off. Um, they go out for a date and have a have a night of passion, and then uh, Rachel goes back to her family, and David is accosted by stray cat, and the kind of like Tybalt fight, Tybalt's death stuff happens. Um, mm-hmm. At which point, like the the kind of the stakes are, ga- are raised, and we're into like third act disaster time, and this is like. 10 minutes from the end of the movie basically yeah but when you get to see rachel with her family she becomes a lot less sympathetic in a way that i don't think was intentional like yeah she does this uh sudden um like halloween goth con uh uh costume change she's basically looked like a normal person up till that point um and like the implication is that she just had all of this shit lying around like she had uh she comes out she's wearing like ripped tights and ripped tights as a top underneath another it's like a bustier or something and like a short really short kilt with like lots of belts and big boots and she's redone she's like she's cut her hair i think and yeah restyled it and she's wearing like this completely deranged makeup and the implication is that she just had all of that shit there ready to go at the drop of a hat she was yeah. like i'm a punk now and she she had all of that stuff to do that complete personal style change none of it looks like thrift shopped or anything it looks like she like went to a costume department and said make me look like a punk and like a a slightly clueless theatrical or or tv costume department did that for her yeah and like i I think like um rachel's character is a really interesting one to kind of again delve into the the slightly odd bits of this movie because again like I think what 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 bugs me is the like there's a lot of setup and no payoff because they the, the movie itself seems confused about what it's trying to do um cuz there is this like the setup of her as as Juliet versus um uh David's Romeo but also like a weird like implication that she is interested in him because he'll really piss off her dad. Yeah. In like the most trite, like daytime TV, like rich girl plot line, which again, right? Like you set up would be interesting, but like that's also never paid off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the fundamental issue is that the movie doesn't really know where the pressure that drives the eventual Romeo and Juliet situation is. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't know where that's supposed to come from. And so it, it introduces stray cat as an antagonist, but like aside from the fact that he's a murderously violent guy um, who carries a knife, he like, there's no, there's no stakes there. Like 
he is mad at David and David's friends because he's jealous about Rachel. But he, there's nothing there's nothing systemic that forces them into one another's orbits. And he, like him and his greaser bikey friends, don't really exist in the movie as like an existential threat to the punks or anything like that. There's no yeah. sense that conflict between these groups is inevitable except because Rachel's, uh, sorry, David's hooking up with his ex-girlfriend. Yeah, and like it's not, we don't like even know anything about them. They just exist. Like, um, and like, like again, I think what's useful is if you like contrast that against, um, like just rewrite. If if it was just a rewrite of of Romeo and Juliet, what would happen is. Um, that character would be a stand-in for uh, Tybalt, who murders uh, Romeo's pal, and therefore Romeo goes to find him and kill him. Yeah. Right? Like, he takes a positive action. Well, in the movie, like, David's just doing stuff, and Stray Cat chases him, like, by accident finds him, and... They just kind of, you know, because he is he has chased him. He, you know, they fight, right? Like, and then they fight because and and I I have to talk about the fight as well because, like, what happens is that that Stray Cat attacks David with uh, with with a, a Stanley knife, and I want to say like. As far as low-budget, socially realist fight scenes, this is grimy and nasty. And, like, getting cut with a Stanley knife looks fucking terrible. And it should. Um, But, like, David gets cut once um, and then does, like, a kung fu turnaround and stabs Stray Cat with his own knife. And... The only setup for that is that during a conversation which has this very jokey flirtatious tone like half an hour previous um he's he offhandedly says to uh, Rachel oh yeah i did all the martial arts kung fu wing chun jackie chan which makes it clear that he's joking you know like he's yeah, he's yeah. he's trying to impress her both like by being a bit boastful and also um, by deliberately getting that wrong, because it's also established that one of the things that draws them together is that they are both movie people who know movie stuff. Um, yeah. So like making a reference to Jackie Chan is like clearly deliberate. And then at the very end of, well, not quite the very end, but you know, like in this climactic fight, fight scene, it is, uh, it it just turns out that that was set up for him actually being like uh, a skilled martial artist kind of out of nowhere because he's never got into a fight up to that point. So we've never had that demonstrated to us. Yeah. And like, I, I just had a quite like a big realization. And I think it's one of the things that, that like kind of bugs me about this movie 
is the end point of this movie like if you take this movie and try and do like a hero's journey or a like you know and just to you be know, clear, yeah, uh, like the hero's journey is bullshit on many levels. It's just a, a handy but, lens occasionally for looking at things. A handy lens, like, but like we 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 want stories where people learn and grow and do you know like that something of import happened in the story. Something somebody learned something. Somebody takes home something. And if you look at it, at this movie through that thing. The protagonist of this movie is not David or Rachel. It's David's dad. Yeah, yeah, it's, and and he gets hardly any time. He's he's a a copper who is like the movie kind of can't make up its mind how sympathetic it is towards him because he picks on David in a way that's quite nasty, but also David's a little shit to him, kind of out of nowhere. And it's not like it's not like his dad has just decided to be a cop, and his da- and David has just decided to be a punk. It's established that these are like a long-standing uh, way of way of the world, and David gets a little yeah. bit of voiceover trying to kind of set it up, but like it, it doesn't really do the job. And so, like the movies, it can't really decide how sympathetic it is to him. But you're right, like the the journey, the person who grows and changes and learns a thing is is him learning not to be a complete shithead about David, who doesn't really learn the same about him. It's not like they learn mutual respect. Yeah. Like they like David like again, right, we don't have any learning something and then, you know, learning something different or like, yeah, like it again, right. Take homes are not, you know, necessary, necessary for a good, um, a good film. But like, you know, if you're writing your first script, maybe think about, Hey, what's the take home? What, what do people walk out of the theater going? Oh, right. You know, the thing we hear was, and, and I just want to to make kind of a secondary point, which is that you don't necessarily have to have your characters learn and grow. They cannot do that, and that can be the point. Like, yeah. uh, there's a sort of tradition I would point to, like Billy Liar, but there are other versions of it where, like, the point is that a character is an awful person or makes all these grandiose claims or something. And the point is that you watch them not follow through and not change. And the world reacts to them either continuing to be shitty or like not doing the thing they said they were going to do or whatever. And that's the point is that this character is uh, archetypally unable to learn from their, from their experiences. Or like, um, uh, like uh, Yojimbo or whatever the version of that as a Western is, right? The point of that is like the Ronin isn't like is Ronin, like they can't they can't stay there. So at the end of the movie, they move on to to probably repeat this like 
with the feeling that they're going to repeat this again mm. and again and but, again. But in Yojimbo, yeah. what happens is that the man comes to town. That's the that's the archetypal yeah. setup. The man comes to town, and then town is changed, even though he is yeah. not changed. Um, but yeah, like that. That kind of was my feeling. Is just like it's hard to like. There are lots of setups and no payoffs, and then like. The other really puzzling thing is just the subline with Monk, um, who is this drug dealer who exists. And yeah. again, it feels like they are a stand-in for something, but we never really find out what. No, like Monk exists to provide an air of menace at the start of the movie because he provides the drugs that kill one of david's friends and he's shown kind of hovering around the edge of scenes being like seedy and vaguely threatening and pushing stuff on people um and all the scenes where he what's achieved in terms of like momentum and plot and setting stuff up by him doing that is purely uh establishing that david doesn't do drugs so that uh, at the end of the movie, when he decides to do drugs um, in kind of desperation at being like isolated and and feeling like he's doomed, um, that we understand that it's going to be especially dangerous for him because he doesn't know what he's doing, basically. Um, but you're right. At, like as a character, he doesn't really have any motivation except for sell drugs. And then he shows up towards the end and tries to help David out. And it's, and he does it quite altruistically. He does like, he does give David drugs in the course of doing that, but he doesn't, it's not like, um, looking for a customer so much as you look like you're in shit shape and you're fucking bleeding all over the place. How about you, you have the only painkiller that I happen to have to hand? Yeah, I like, there's also, I'm not sure if it was intentional, like, gay coding, but he, he feels really like he's trying to pick up David a lot of the time. Yeah, I think it's because he's kind of like softly insistent and kind of wheedling in the way that he's trying to push the drugs. Um, I, yeah. I do feel like that's unintentional i think it's just i i mean look if i had to if i had to stake money on it right i would go i would go mike san this guy who last directed a movie in 1970 is trying to do one in 1993 and he's trying to be topical and like what's what's topical okay well there's like there's the the burgeoning rave scene which kind of was like a late 80s, early 90s phenomenon in Britain, if, if I understand it rightly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and part of mainstream opinion about that was the kind of moral panic about the increasing prevalence of particularly like MDMA and its derivatives, um, your, your ecstasy and so on. Um, and so Monk is an attempt to be topical and modern because aside from like the weird 
like wheedling seedy as you say like weirdly gay coded stuff his look and vibe compared to david and the punks's outfits is like he's very much like a 90s raver like he's wearing like the baggy track suit and the baseball cap and he's got like buzzed short hair um like you could see him like gurning and and doing the weird moves in a like basement rave um while like uh music that goes that plays um yeah like I, I was just about to say like now you now we put talk talk about it he feels like he's from like like um in a sort of character design way in a like a look and and actions way he feels like he's from a different movie like he's wandered in from like the set next door yeah yeah right. and and i think like so does Stray Cat, right? Stray Cat yeah. is like Stray Cat is like a nineties exploitation movie biker. Um yeah. like Stray Cat is from one of the less bizarre um trauma movies. Uh he feels like almost. I mean, he's he's not American, he's British, but like he feels like he feels like a kid's drawing of a bad biker. Um, yeah. And David's mother, who we haven't talked about yet, um, but she's like uh, portrayed as like an immigrant. She, she's supposed to be like Italian or Spanish or something, something Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. It's never quite clear. Um, and she has a mental breakdown, which is more kind of Ophelia than anything from Romeo and Juliet. But yeah. David goes to visit her in the in the mental health unit. Um, after she's had her breakdown, which is precipitated by him leaving home. And that felt like it was supposed to be social realist, but her version of madness is very, like, stage Shakespearean. Like, she's got the the crazy Ophelia hair and, like, little bits of, like, weird glittery shit tied in it. Um, And she's very, like, wide eyes and delivery like this. Um and again, like, it's not that that wouldn't necessarily work, but it's in a different movie. It's in like a, yeah. an actual straight Shakespeare adaptation that that performance, or even just like if like, and I guess this is the thing, right? Like, none of these things were by themselves like a bad idea, right? Like, if you wanted to you could make like um like Romeo plus Juliet, right? Oh, um, I was gonna I, I do think that, that it's worth mentioning that 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 movie came out like three years later and yeah. that probably somewhat contributes to the obscurity of this movie. Because yeah. like we saw this movie about the time that Romeo Romeo plus Juliet came out. Um, yeah. Like that's the point at which it was like on TV maybe a year or so for, before. I, I forget exactly how old I was when I saw it. It was somewhere between like 14 and 16. So that, yeah, yeah. that puts it like 1995 to 1997. Um but, but, like, one of the ways that movie deals with, like, 
how do you transport the whole Capulets and Montague thing onto the stage is like having very stylized costumes for everybody so that you can kind of look at a character and go, oh, they are one of them. They are one of them. Like, you could have done that here. You could like, oh, we have the punks and we have, like, the foreign and rich people. Um, like, you know, we have the the Americans, yeah, the punks, for instance. The bikers, the yuppies. These are all tribes with a distinct visual identity. Um, yeah. And... and like uh, are presented as like a, I don't know a power block in the city or something. Yeah, like the cops, right? Like um, you could do that, um, but again, the movie just doesn't quite make it there. Right? Like it, it kind of like all of the punks are punky, the bikers are bikey, but that's not set up as like a, as opposed tribes. Like those are just kind of people moving through the normal world and yeah and by the same token i think you could like if you imagine this movie now the guy's name's gone out of my head um who's the guy british social realist filmmaker made my name is joe ken loach there we go. Right. You could imagine this movie being like the Ken Loach version of itself, where it is like nothing but grim social realism. And there is some sort of systemic force that creates the Romeo and Juliet relationship. And you get to see these two people come together and fall in love and then be crushed by, by like systemic forces beyond their control. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, you could also have made that movie. Yeah, no, entirely. Um, and like, yeah, it just, again, like there are lots of places this movie takes one step towards and then like it feels like it stops and just kind of, um, you know, twiddles its thumbs and goes, ooh, it looks a bit dangerous down there. Better not. Um, yeah, and so... Like, again, like I said at the start, I don't know what happened, right? Like, the it feels to me like something happened, but maybe it simply did not connect, and that is the deal. But maybe one of the things that happened is, if you look at the IMDb page for this, you see that Michael San is credited as the writer based on the the they call it a novel, but it's really a novella, um, if that yep. by by Gideon Sams. Um I wonder if it's this sixties guy attempting to be hip with the kids. Um and that that's like it's just a kind of I don't know, a, a kind of 60s cowardice um, married with, like, this, as I say, like, very 60s guy um, doing, like, hello, fellow kids. Yeah, yeah. Or, t- like, um, a kind of... Um, yeah, like, just, like, yeah, like... like uh, yeah, it it does. It it's weird because, as you say, occasionally it gets very 
good reads on kind of weird young person interactions, right? Um, a lot of the stuff of punks being rowdy young lads and causing disruption just to cause disruption feels very true. As you say, the like the bits where um, uh, Rachel and David are given space to act as like dopey kids falling in love is again really good. Um, so like there are lots of bits of this where it's um, like yeah like that lands pretty well but like overall structurally as you say like there's this weird don't do drugs kids thing there's you know some other stuff happening just like what what was going on (laughs) what was the point yeah yeah no that's that's that is exactly right and if there were a thing to recommend this movie because we are getting to time so we should we should probably uh round things off but if there were a thing to recommend this movie, the thing that stuck in my head and that came through again on this rewatch is that it looks like it looks like Charlie Creed Miles and his other like young actor co actor I guess mates co stars mm. whatever they look like they're having just the best time getting to make a movie like yeah yeah. All of the all of the incidental fucking around where they like go play snooker in a pub and get into a pool cue sword fight with yuppies or oh, yeah, that's like, right. yes. do a weird little beatboxing dance fight at the bus stop for no reason yeah. or just like fuck around in a football stadium after they've found out that their mate died from a drug overdose. Like all of that stuff is incredibly charming. Um and looks like they're just having a great time bouncing off one another. And the chemistry between Rachel and David is is real and really powerful. Um and the yeah, the scenes where they just like have rambling conversations that go nowhere. And there's an interesting thing where like you don't see jump cuts in movies that often. Mm-hmm. But they use it in this movie to indicate the passage of time and and indicate that they're having this long rambling conversation like Rachel and David are sat at a restaurant table talking about their lives and the stuff they like and all this stuff and then mm-hmm. it'll, it'll really like jarringly jump cut to just later in the same conversation to kind of show you how they're spending time just kind of talking about nothing and being comfortable with each other and for a very weird editing choice, it actually kind of works. Yeah. Yeah, and no, like, like, I guess the thing is, this feels like a, um, like, what's, what's kind of curious is that, like, Michael Sarn had done other, like, work before he did this, because it does feel like really first move, first move, the first movie-ish, right? Like, this is, like, a pretty good first attempt. Um, there's lots of really good stuff, like a lot of, um, you know, as I say, as you say, when, when the actors are given space to do their thing, they do it very well. Um, 
especially when they're given space to play, which are like, again, it feels like a lot of the stuff was just like, oh, it turns out like uh, these two actors can like break dance. Let's just chuck some of them kind of break dance beatboxing in there. Cause we, because they can. Um, yeah. And there's like some, some great, like just really, really like, Londony London in there, right? Yep. Like it's just yep. and and the reason that it warped the speech patterns of of us and our friends is that particularly in the kind of establishing scenes early on, there's lots of moments where and I I have a theory, <laughs> which we will maybe get to in a second, but where like seemingly off the cuff things from actors are very mimetically powerful and and quotable. There's like there there's a couple of uh, David's mates just chatting at the side of us, kind of incidentally at the side of the scene, and they have this little exchange where they go tasty, tasty, very tasty, very tasty, and it, it like it's just kind of infectious, you know? Yeah. Um. So I guess my theory, which we will never have proved, is that. Michael San, um, and interestingly, again, if you look at IMDb, a lot of the like other production team is uh, there are other Sans. So there's like a William San who's an associate producer. Michael San's a producer as well as director and main writer. Like there's a lot of that stuff going on, which makes me wonder if it's Michael San's like you know attempt to reestablish yeah. relevance. My theory is that Michael San wrote a dog of a movie um, and the bits that don't work are what's left of his original original vision. Um, Mm. The reason I say this is because Michael San is like – his heyday is quite removed from the time and place that this movie takes place in. And also he appears to be kind of a shithead. If you go and read his Wikipedia article, he's like on record as having both had an affair with and been physically abusive to actresses on movies that he made in the sixties, like nasty. Anyway, my, my theory is that he made kind of a dog of a movie and had the luck of working with quite talented and charismatic young actors with whom I think he was justifiably enchanted. And so he left, he gave them a lot of space to do stuff and left a lot of that them doing stuff in and all the stuff about the movie that works is really like driven by the cast and them fucking about, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, like, it, again, again, it, like, occasionally feels very much like a, um, what is the word? Uh, like, a collection of actors, uh, an ensemble piece, right? Like, it, it has some of the feelings of, 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 uh, of an ensemble piece, because, as you say, like, there's just bits that go on to other bits. Um, but yeah, like, I think that seems like a reasonable shout. Like it was Michael Sarn trying to write an adaptation of what people like 
widely accept is not a great book. And um, and to be clear, like the book has a doomed love story in it, but that's really the only connection it has to Romeo and Juliet. It's not mm. – if you find it and read it, which you can, it's on the internet for free. Um, the author, I would say, is Gideon Sams. Um, it's not – it doesn't come off as a studied attempt to do a Romeo and Juliet thing. It's got mm-hmm. a punk who falls in love with a girl and then they both die. But mostly what it is, is a bunch of stuff that Gideon Sams observed about punks that he thought was cool when he was 14. Um, yeah. And in opposition with what he calls Ted's. Um and I mean, like the punks versus Ted's thing, I I understand was real, but like, mm-hmm. it's not it's not Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so the the connections there have been like it a surface observation was made, and then they tried to make something bigger of it. Is what I'm saying. Oh, I I, I yeah I see yeah like um um. Yeah, no, like it then then yeah, like there, there's this there's this book that 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 maybe had some fame around nineteen ninety three that was like quickly tried to turn into a movie to get some some push off it and then yeah, like stumbled into having, you know, some competent actors um take part. Um and and kind of again when they um like uh like uh yeah when they when when they manage to have free reign to act they they kind of pull this movie back yeah yeah so um by way of finishing things off do we have any recommendations would we recommend that people go and watch this movie if you can because to be clear we had to find a pirated copy uh, on a dubious website. The quality of it is disastrously bad. Um, it's, as, I, as we said at the start, taped from TV uh, and then digitized poorly. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not going to be a, a glorious high-fidelity viewing experience. Um, there may be tapes out there floating around. It certainly existed in video shops back when VHS video stores were a thing, but I've never seen it anywhere since. Yeah, no. Like, again, like, I'm not sure it's worth hunting high and low for, but if you, you know, are stuck somewhere and it's and and it's on an old VHS, it might be worth um, uh, worth watching. Um, yeah, I mean, not to not to extend this show past its already uh, overextended runtime too much further, but I did find it fascinating that in the age of, as Cory Doctorow puts it, etowoth, everything that ever was available forever, there are some things which are simply not, and this is one of them. You know, like, you can yeah. find it if you put in the effort and know where to look, but... You know, this uh, briefly, moderately successful cult romantic drama film from the 90s, you have to put in the same kind of effort as people who want to, like, 
watch beheadings and shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or just like find, like, um, I've been listening to a lot of um, Eleanor Yagana talking about medieval stuff um, and the, the kind of the, the way that people, uh, you know, investigate medieval things. You have to kind of turn up a lot of rocks to see if somebody put it somewhere weird and then completely forgot about it, right? You'd, you'd have to kind of um, find the one stream of it which is still available somewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, um, with that thoroughly reserved recommendation out of the way, is there anything else that you would recommend if people have found this conversation interesting? I mean, obviously, if you have not watched the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet, you should. It's probably the best modern adaptation, I would say, Yeah. simply because of Baz Luhrmann's... uh, proclivities like Baz Luhrmann is a guy who will never give you less than like the dials up to 11 on everything um and yeah. for Romeo and Juliet that's kind of the right vibe yeah 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 um if I thought better about this I'd try and like dig out um uh like another alternative Romeo and Juliet which is I'm, I'm sure there's, oh, there's uh, another good one Franco Zeffirelli's 1970s one um, again, yeah. very lurid and over the top uh, Italian director from the 70s has uh, Olivia Newton-John in it, I believe, um, kind of pre-stardom um, and uh, and a, a quite a good um, take on on Mercutio, which is which is uh, kind of fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh I'm sure there's some some other pretty good like punk based movies as well if you're like looking for some London punk vibes. But again, they've gone out of my head. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you do want social realism, just watch Ken Loach. Just uh, you know, I be, mean, be prepared to make have sure you prepare some prepare some aftercare afterwards. Yeah, but do you, watch some Ken Loach movies. You're going to get violently kicked in the soul. But uh, like, if you want to know that it's grim out there. He'll fucking tell you that it's really grim out there. Um, yeah, yeah. Finally, is there anything that you want people to be aware of uh, and or plug? Um, I would like to plug the ongoing climate disaster. Please do something about it. Yeah, please. Um, not really. Uh, everything is um, everything. Uh, you know, go find some way of offering mutual aid to those people around you. Yeah. Um Get to know your neighbours, join a WhatsApp group. Yeah, all of those things. And and I suppose by way of putting in a very last uh, recommendation, it because she mostly worked in TV, it's a bit, a bit uh, of a mission to follow Vanessa Hathaway's later career, but follow Charlie Creed Miles's later career. Like, um, he reliably does a good job in the th- places where he turns up. He's in the fifth element of all goddamn things. And, um, yep. and like watch, watch wild bill. Um, I wild bill is about a guy who made a, a life in crime by being very good at violence, trying not to do violence once he gets out of jail and, and trying to build a life without being very good at violence. And, um, yeah, I I I I dug it and I think it's a good indication of what we missed out on through Charlie Creed Miles not being like a big leading man. Yeah, yeah. 
You've been listening to Reserved Recommendations, a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Ngā Tangata o Manawatu. The show was produced and presented by me, Hugh Dingwall, and I also composed our theme music. It's called Sack Jazz, and you can find it at wolfboy.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this show, why not go ahead and share it with a friend? You can find the last 10 episodes at npr.nz slash show slash reserved, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want an episode older than that, try searching for Reserved Recommendations on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Objective Realty, or you can follow the show on Facebook. And finally, Two People's Radio is a non-profit community access station. If you like this or any other piece of their fine audio programming, why not fling them a dollar or two? You can go to npr.nz slash donate for more information on how to do that. Thank you.